morning again. I always tell everybody that when you get up in front of people, it's okay to have butterflies in your stomach till you're the one that's up here in front of people. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Last winter, this old dog learned a new trick. A lot of times when Pam goes into the grocery store, I spend the time out in the truck, and uh, every now and then, you see somebody who's out in the parking lot doing laps with the grocery cart. They can't find their car. The, the makers of your automobile knew that this would happen. It doesn't help that they make all the automobiles look the same. So, so they put a locator so that you could find your car. When you pull your key fob out, it's that button on your key fob that says P-A-N-I-C. <laughs> I was in Medford a couple of weeks ago and uh, this gal was doing laps around the, around the lot, oh, obviously couldn't find her car. And she had been clicking it, doing the, the lights, unlocking it, you know, still couldn't find her car. So I, I thought, well, I'll be the good Samaritan, I'll, I'll help her. So I told her to push the panic button. Way over on the other side of the parking lot, this car starts honking. I saved her a few laps. What we're going to talk about this morning may not be new, but it's certainly worth revisiting. By the end of the service today, I hope that you will be able to see the relevance and perhaps help someone else lighten their load, changing their outlook on life. Today we return to the Summer in the Psalms series. We will be looking at Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is not a unique psalm. Several of David's psalms are very similar. But what I would like to do today is to look at this psalm through the lens of the New Testament. In particular, Matthew 11, 28 through 30 where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, and take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In all of the Gospels, this is the only place where Jesus tells us what his heart is like. Sometime in the future, we might visit this passage and study it. For today, I mostly want to focus on a couple of things. Jesus' invitation to us and our response to that invitation. Who does Jesus invite? All who are lab labor and are heavy laden. The best I can explain that is sinners and sufferers. We have a pretty good idea 
of sinners, but who are the sufferers? Anyone who experiences pain or heartache of living in a fallen world. You have probably figured out Jesus' invitation is for everyone. We need to respond, to come to him, open ourselves up to him. You might be thinking, been there, done that. It would be a mistake to think of this invitation as a one-time event. Coming to eat Jesus doesn't just happen at conversion. It's a part of our ongoing salvation. We should be coming to Jesus with our sin and our sufferings on an as-needed basis. We don't. We Christians don't. Why are you and I having conversations with fellow Christians who are caught up in fear, anxiety, depression, unhappiness, and a bunch of other issues? I talked to one person who lives in a large city. He expressed concern about going to his Walmart store. Why? Because the shootings had just happened in Texas. He was afraid to go to the Walmart store because someone might bring a gun and start shooting people. Labor and heavy laden pretty much covers the whole of life. It is the burden of sin and the burdens of life. Sufferings, as I'm going to use it today, is the weight of life's problems. The list is endless. Children who have led wayward lives, marriage problems, the person at work who continually rubs your fur the wrong way, the boss you just can't seem to communicate with, or any number of other issues in life. David's life had both sin and sufferings. Psalm 31 is David bearing his heart to God, coming to God, opening himself up to God. As we look at Psalm 31, that is what David is doing, giving us an example of what it means to come to God. Next week, we're going to focus in on sufferings this morning. Next week, Hoyt is going to go over Psalm 32, which where David wrestles with his sin. So we're going to focus on, on just kind of the sufferings end of that. Before we start Psalm 31, there's a couple of things that we need to say about it. The first is a reminder about Hebrew poetry. It is thought-based rather than sound-based. The easiest way to say that is, we rhyme they don't. There are some things that the writers do, like an acrostic starting each stanza with a successive Hebrew letter in Psalms 119. For our purposes today, you will often see the second and the third line expressing the same thought as the first line, or sometimes even building upon the first line. The second thing about Psalm 31 is David's obvious military background. 
He uses words often associated with placements of troops from a position of advantage or a secure defensive position. The third thing about Psalm 31 is we don't know exactly when that occurred in David's life. Some of the verses seem to fit well with him on the run from Absalom, his son. Lots of Christians have relationship issues in their families. David had family issues in spades. The psalm seems to point to David on the run from his son's troops. It occurred to me while I was sitting back there um, listening to David talk about Afghanistan, a lot of what we're going to read in Psalm 31 is, is David's experience is a little bit foreign to our experience. But it, it occurred to me that if we were living in Afghanistan as Christians, it would be directly related to what we were going through. We're going to pray and then we'll, we'll read Psalm 31 and pick our way through that. <clears throat> so bow with me. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come and share what you've laid on my heart. Father, my prayer is that all of us would not leave here without knowing about how to come to you, the invitation that you've given to us to lay our burdens upon you. Father, you have given us a number of invitations in the, in the New Testament. Lord, I pray that we might take full advantage of them. Father, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, Psalm 31. David wrote this psalm and, and directed the music director to put it to music. He wanted Israel to learn Psalm 31. And we are the beneficiaries of Psalm 31 because there's things that we need to learn out of Psalm 31. So, beginning at verse 1. For the music director, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I have taken shelter. Never let me be humiliated. Vindicate me by rescuing me. Listen to me. Quickly deliver me. Be my protector and refuge, a stronghold where I can be safe. For you are my high ridge and my stronghold. For the sake of your own reputation, you lead me and guide me. You will free me from the net they hid from me. For you are my place of refuge. Into your hand I entrust my life. You will rescue me, O Lord, the faithful God. I hate those who serve worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be happy and rejoice in your faithfulness because you notice my pain and you are aware of how distressed I am. You do not deliver me over to the power of the enemy. You enable me to stand in a wide open place. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow dim from suffering. I have lost my strength. For my life nears its end in pain. My years 
Draw close as I groan. Draw to a close as I groan. My strength fails me because of my sin, and my bones become brittle. Because of all my enemies, people disdain me. My neighbors are appalled at my suffering. Those who know me are horrified by my condition. Those who see me in the street run away from me. I am forgotten, like a dead man no one thinks about. I am regarded as worthless, like a broken jar. For I hear what so many are saying, the terrifying news that comes from every direction. When they plot together against me, they figure out how they can take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I declare you are my God. You determine my destiny. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and those who chase me. Smile on your servant. Deliver me because of your faithfulness. O Lord, do not let me be humiliated, for I call out to you. May evil men be humiliated. May, may they go wailing to the grave. May lying lips be silenced, lips that speak defiantly against the innocent with arrogance and contempt. How great is your favor, which you store up for your loyal followers. In plain sight of everyone, you bestow it on those who take shelter in you. You hide them with you where they are safe from the attacks of men. You conceal them in a shelter where they are safe from slanderous attacks. The Lord deserves praise, for he demonstrated his amazing faithfulness to me when I was besieged by enemies. I jumped to conclusions and said, I am cut off from your presence. But you heard my plea for mercy when I cried out to you for help. Love the Lord all you faithful followers of his. The Lord protects those who have integrity, but he pays back the one who acts arrogantly. Be strong and confident, all you who wait on the Lord. <clears throat> the first of four points that I think David wants us to get is that in times of suffering, God alone is my defense my protector. He uses several terms that talk about, um, in military terms, the, uh, the fact that God is his protector, his, his defense. Shelter, refuge, protector, stronghold, high ridge. Other translations uh, might say rock, strong fortress, or mountain fortress. Here is a general who relies upon God for protection, for deliverance, for rescue. He doesn't, he doesn't, David is not relying on his own strength. He's depending upon God's. I want us to look at the manner of David's petition for this rescue. David prays in a way that we're kind of unaccustomed to. There's a boldness that raises our eyebrows. There are at least four reasons that I came up with that David can pray with boldness. The first one is God has delivered him in the past and he will do it again. He looks back on his life. He's seen the deliverance that God has, has carried him through and he's confident 
expectantly confident that God will get him through this next ordeal. The second reason is that it wasn't about David. He says in verse 3, For the sake of your own reputation, you lead me and guide me. It wasn't about David, it was about God, about God's reputation. Thirdly, we can pray expectantly when we're claiming God's promises, knowing his will. For David, that meant God is for good and against evil. And the people who were chasing him were the the ones on the evil side. Lastly, David can pray with confidence expectantly because God knows our situation, where and when we are hurting. It's cause for contentment and assurance. Look at verse 7. I will be happy and rejoice in your faithfulness because you notice my pain and you are aware of how distressed I am. David's going through turmoil in his life, yet he says, I will be happy and rejoice in your faithfulness. Clearly, David's happiness is not contingent on his circumstances. David is all in. He puts all of his eggs in one basket. For David, there is no other alternatives. He says in verse 5, Into your hands I entrust my spirit. He expresses trust and commitment. You may recognize these words. They're the last of, of Jesus' sayings made on the cross, the last of seven. Both Jesus and David are trusting their outcome to God. David says, you have redeemed me. You have rescued me. I'm yours. I belong to you. And then in, in verse 6, he says, I hate those who serve worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Everyone trusts in someone. Everyone trusts in someone. Even the person who claims not to not to trust in anything because he's trusting in himself. David says, I hate those who worship worthless idols. God remains our protector even when sin complicates our suffering. Verses 9 and 10 and, and also 11 seem to point to this psalm being later in David's life. One might easily assume that when you complicate your life with sin, God throws up his arms and says, you're on your own because you can't follow orders, because you can't keep my commands. That is what we humans do. We say, enough is enough. Come on, man. How much more do I have to put up with? These are human expressions. They're not God's. We grossly err when we assume God responds to us like fellow humans responds to us. 
That's why we need the Bible. If we go just on what we know from our human relationships, we put upon God something that is totally off base. We need the Bible to set us straight for God to tell us what he is really like. David knew that God would not turn his back on a repentant sinner. One of my, one of my fast, fast becoming favorite verses is John 6.37, which says, all that the Father, I, I, I had it memorized and I blew it. Um, <laughs> all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When we come to Jesus with our sin, even the same sin as last time, even the same sin as the time before, Jesus doesn't shake his finger. He doesn't get a scowl on his face. He doesn't hold his nose when we come with yet another confession. Instead, he welcomes us with open arms. He doesn't just meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. Jesus invites everyone with a burden to simply come, to open yourselves up to him, to tell him of your fav- failures. I want to say just, just one little ditty about scripture memorization. One of the benefits, there are a lot of benefits about memorizing scripture, but one of the benefits that has come to me in in a new way in the last couple of years is that when you memorize scripture it helps you meditate on scripture meditation has been described as a a cow chewing its cud you mull it over and over and over again and you you take it apart and you put it back together and you apply it to your life and how it fits in all the different ways in your life. John 637 is a great verse and it was a short one so it was kind of easy to memorize. John Bunyan wrote a whole book on this one verse. He was a Puritan, and they knew the discipline of meditation. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But you say, oh, but I've sinned a lot. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But But I've sinned in the past, lots. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, but I'm a great sinner. 
I'm an old great sinner. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But you don't understand. I've sinned against people, and I've sinned against you. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a great promise. What a great Savior. You get the picture. The second thing that David wants us to learn from Psalm 31 is, in times of suffering, God determines the outcome. David says in verse 11, I get no help from my friends. People disdain me. My neighbors are appalled at my suffering. They avoid me when they see me. They go down the other side of this aisle or on the other side of the street. No one calls or comes by. They no longer value me. They treat me like a broken jar, worthless. I am of no value to them. They even plot to take David's life. But David responds, God is the one in whom I'm trusting. He controls the outcome. In verse 15, he says, you determine my destiny. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and those who chase me. Our first choice is that God would deliver us from pain and suffering. But that doesn't always happen. And so our next our next prayer is, Lord, give me the grace to get through it. David was pretty confident that God would deliver him in one form or another, being chased across the desert by his son's troops. Rescue me because of your promise. David prays knowingly that he's not the wrongdoer, that good would triumph and that evil would be thwarted. He was innocent. And even though the people were accusing him, David knew that God would vindicate him because he was innocent. The third thing that David wants to see is in times of suffering, God is faithful to those who belong to him. The hard truth is God doesn't treat people indiscriminately. It was true in David's day. He said in verse 19, How great is your favor, which you store up for your loyal followers. Jesus kind of said the same thing in different words. In Matthew chapter 11, about verse 20, before he, before he offered the invitation for everybody to come and share their burdens with him, he had some very harsh words to say to the towns in Galilee because they had rejected him, because they had refused to repent. Jesus said, if Sodom would have seen 
the things that you guys have seen, they would be here to this day. It's going to be better in the day of judgment for Sodom than it is for you. God does not deal with everyone on the same basis. Those who come to him are the ones that he offers the, um, the invitation for carrying their burdens. If those who reject Jesus will not fare well. God will show favor to those who come to him even when our faith falters and stumbles. In verse 22, 21 and 22, David writes, The Lord deserves praise, for he demonstrated his amazing faithfulness to me when I was besieged by enemies. I jumped to conclusions and said, I am cut off from your presence, but you heard my plea for mercy when I cried out to you for help. When God doesn't meet our expectations, our faith can sometimes stumble. God shows his amazing faithfulness. Why amazing? Because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Lastly, the fourth thing David wants us to realize is in times of suffering, God is our confidence. David ends this psalm with an admonition to Israel and us. Be genuine with God and with people. God protects those who are genuine. Verse 23 says, Love the Lord, all you faithful followers of his. The Lord protects those who have integrity, but he pays back in full the one who acts arrogantly. A makeover won't fool God. He knows our heart. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. God pays back in full the one who acts arrogantly. It has been my observation that there are at least two ways believers cut God out of their lives. We say God can't handle this. Oh, we don't dare verbalize that. We say it in a different way. We say it with our with our actions. We say God can't handle this when we're anxious, when we're fearful, when we're distressed, when we're unhappy. My problems are just too big for God. I'm keeping my burdens. I'd like to introduce you to my friend Jerry. Jerry and I ride motorcycles in the wintertime. He lives in Saskatchewan. He calls me every couple of months. We have long conversations. Jerry was raised in a Christian family. He has a Christian worldview. He sees the value of Christianity. But Jerry's not a Christian. Jerry's also not bashful. If 
if you're having a discussion with Jerry and he disagrees with you, he will challenge you on it. The last time I had a conversation with Jerry, he asked a tough question. In the course of our conversation, it came around to Jerry asking this question. Why are so many Christians unhappy? My first thought is, wow, if Jerry's knowing this, it must be worse than I think. We probably all know of a believer who has lost their joy. They're literally miserable and are not easy to be around. Circumstances have overwhelmed them and left them looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Maybe it was a diagnosis from the doctor or a financial woes or relationship issues with relatives Maybe friends that have unfriended them or dreams left unfulfilled. The list is endless. A bumper sticker captures what our culture believes. The one who dies with the most toys wins. But the lie is this. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. So when circumstances are on in the pits, so is our joy. This is not the life God wants us to live. Jesus wants to lighten the load. Brandon said last week that hopelessness was the opposite of joy. I want to add to the other side of that coin. Joy is not the absence of suffering but the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. David finishes with, be strong and confident, all you, you who wait on the Lord, and that's what I'd like to finish with. The confidence we have in Jesus to help us in our time of need. I want us to look at another, another passage in the New Testament. It's the last three verses in Hebrews chapter 4. We should turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14. All three of these passages that I've talked about in the New Testament invite us to come to Jesus. All three passages offer helps in time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For do we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in a time of need. I just want to go through these verses fairly quickly and kind of paraphrase and, and illustrate what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here. Verse 14 talks about holding fast to our belief in Jesus, the Son of God, who has God's stamp of approval, having passed through the heavens. Don't give up. Don't give up on your faith. Keep on believing. Verse 15 says Jesus has been there and done that. So he understands what we're going through as weak humans. He sympathizes with our weakness. He has been tempted just like us. But even better, he has endured the temptation without sin. Until recently, I never really understood the impact of not having sinned upon temptation. Permit me to give you an illustration. My Bible studies group is going to cringe at this. Um, I watch YouTube, and sometimes I watch YouTube for entertainment purposes. And one of the things I like to watch is uh, motorcycle hill climbs over in Europe. They're pretty wild. In fact, they're so wild that nobody makes it to the top. They, by the time you get to the very top part of the hill, it's almost vertical. So you have to do everything perfectly to get to the top of the hill. What often happens, they, people will take off and they bail off a quarter of the way, a half way. Some make it three quarters of the way to the top of the hill. But nobody's perfect. So they, they never make it to the top. Now, if you're going to get instructions about how to get to the top of the hill, who are you going to ask? You're going to ask the guy that bailed off a quarter of the way up the hill? No, he didn't get very far. You're going to ask the guy, if there is such a person, who, wrote, who did it perfectly, who got to the top of the hill. That hill is just like our temptation. As humans... We've all bailed off. Some of us make it a quarter of the way. Some of us make it a half of the way. None of us make it to the top of the hill, except Jesus. He made it to the top of the hill. So if we're going to deal with temptation, who are you going to ask? You're going to go to the guy who was perfect, who overcame the obstacles of temptation who wrestled with it all the way through and yet did not sin. That's who you go to when you want to know how to deal with temptation. Verse 16 says, Since we know Jesus knows how to handle temptation, we can come with confidence to the throne of God, to the throne of grace, knowing we will receive mercy to help us with our needs, all of our burdens. 
Davis gave it an example of how to come to God. We just need to do it. That's the hard part. Make up our mind to do it. You may know someone who is carrying a heavy burden. It might even be you. Jesus is waiting for you to bear your heart to him. With arms wide open, inviting you to come. Don't leave here today without lightening the load. If need be, talk to one of the other elders who would love to pray with you to help you get rid of your burdens. They'll be walking around with one of these hanging around their neck. There are some questions on the back side of the bulletin insert to help you probe your heart a little deeper. Or perhaps help a friend whose burdens are heavy. I hope everyone can leave today knowing that Jesus offers an invitation personally to you to come and share your burdens with him. Let's close in prayer. What a wonderful God. What a great Savior who offers a great invitation. Lord, that's the life you picked for us. We don't always choose it. We sometimes decide to carry the load ourselves. Father, help us to recognize that that's not your plan for us. And that we need you each day. That you welcome us with arms wide open. That you live in our place of need. That you promise that we can come with confidence to the throne of grace. And you will provide mercy and grace to help us with our need. Lord, I thank you for the great provisions you have for us. Father, I pray that, that no one would leave without accepting your invitation. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray this all because of Jesus. Amen.